Welcome back to the Big Water Podcast. Here we are, producer dude. Who do we have today? Who did you line up for us? Uh, I I don't line anyone up. You line them up. But it, I'm glad Chris we're on the same page. Chris Vandergoot is what I know. Yeah, Chris Vandergoot. So here's the deal. We've had Travis Hartman on here several times. I didn't even want to have him on once, but we've had him on multiple oh, times. Travis is good. Travis he is, is good. But he's done really good because I think that, the honestly, the thing is, is I mean, he's had, you know, a lot of people listening to his deal. His podcast numbers have been good. That's the only reason we have him on. And people want to know, simply put, like this fish facts, like real numbers, not what some guide like this ginger is going to tell you, right? We want to know some real kind of hard facts, at least hard as we can get. Um, I mean, that's basically what Travis gave us, right? Yeah, Travis gave us lots of fun facts. Fun did facts. you know? Did you did you know? That's what he did. He came up. He's like a game show host. Well, I, here's here's the, the word on the street. I did a little digging. I did a little little scraping, and I found that we we don't have bottom of the barrel. We have cream on the top here with Mr. Vandergoot. So we're going to bring him in and he's going to have some fun facts for us and explain exactly what he does. I think you're going to be surprised, producer dude. You're going to be kind of impressed that we dug this guy up because he's kind of like they hide him away, basically. All right. Well, he looks ready. So let's let's go. Chris, thanks for taking some time here. Welcome to the Big Water Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be able to uh, join and uh, share some of the stuff that we've been working on not only here in Lake Erie, but across the Great Lakes. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you full disclosure here. We're going to throw Travis Hartman under the bus, the fisheries guy, okay? For years, and we've, we've talked about this on the podcast, I would do seminars before or after him. You know, we'd have some event or something, and I would always bust his chop because he would go up there and he's got all these pie charts and these graphs and all this stuff, and people are like, oh. And I'd be like, hey, thanks for warming them up, or hey, thanks for putting them to sleep for me, you know, like that. But what we found here on, on the podcast is, I mean, although Travis has some great information, is that, you know, people really want to know about these walleye facts, you know what I mean, numbers, or at least the best that we, we could have, you know, and a lot of the stuff kind of correlates to what us as fishermen find. And explain exactly what you do and, you know, give us uh, a little overtake of, of what's going on. Okay, so I moved here to Northern Ohio back in 2002. My first job was, with, was as a fisheries biologist with, for the Division of Wildlife working on Lake Erie. Travis and I worked together actually for quite a few years. We, uh, we would razz each other on a regular basis, uh, especially when it got late at night. Tra Travis got a little cranky, but you know, that's, that's, that's all good. Um, so I worked there as a fisheries biologist for about 14 or 15 years, transitioned over to the United States Geological Survey as a research biologist for two years and then in May of 2019, I took my uh, current position as the director of the Great Lakes Acoustic Telemetry Observation System. And so uh, technically I'm an employee of Michigan State University, but a lot of the funding for uh, the telemetry system that, we're, that I oversee comes to the Great Lakes Fishery Commission. That, that's a mouthful, but in simple terms, basically the radio trackers and that, that whole deal well, let me, doing, right? let me simplify it a little bit more. It's actually not radio trackers. These are okay. acoustic transmitters. So acoustic. radio signals go through the water up into the air. Acoustic signals are strictly underwater. Just like if you took your transducer out of, your, out of the water on your boat, it really wouldn't work. Uh, if you take these transmitters out of water, the sound has to be travel through water. So these are actually acoustic transmitters, not radio transmitters. I'm sure this won't be the first time that I'm scolded with inaccurate verbiage. <laughs> well, Travis told me I needed to make sure I did that, so. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. No doubt. I mean, as bad as he was, I mean, good information. It takes a lot, it takes a lot to uh, get through to Ross's brain, so you're going to have to speak very simply. Simply, slow, and go. But at any rate, so we're going to do this in the same type thing. You know, that, that did you know thing. I mean, I feel like Chris... You know, you work for Michigan State. You do this whole fisheries thing. I feel like you have a little game show host in you. Well, we can, uh, we can I see. Like, I don't know. I feel like you're a quiet killer. Chris, I feel <laughs> like you're a quiet killer. You know what I mean? I feel like you could bust some chops. Uh, I don't know that I've ever been accused of being a quiet killer. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I don't fly under the radar very easily. And I, uh, as Travis can attest to, I, I break a lot of things, particularly when we're out on the boat working. So. Oh, that, no, that's, some, that's a fun fact for another podcast, huh? Yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you what. So basically, for people that haven't listened to the other stuff, the acoustic, I, I'm, so, I'm probably going to call Radar just to piss both you and producer dude off. <laughs> but um, we're, we've got little receivers spread out through the, through the lake, and you're able to transmit information back. And the thing that I, I've kind of learned here, and again, clarify this for me right out of the gate, how far, what's the range as far as not just where, you know, a, a Lake Erie is basically covered, but you guys are, are sharing this information with, is it like Lake Huron or where else do we have this, this system um, set up around here on the Great Lakes or elsewhere? So basically the system works throughout the entire Great Lakes. So from Lake Superior all the way to, through Lake Ontario, and now we're even moving out into the St. Lawrence River. So theoretically, any fish that are tagged as part of the GLaDOS network or the Great Lakes Acoustic Plumetry Observation System. If a fish were to swim anywhere through there, we would pick it up if there is a receiver in the area. So just like you said, Lake Erie is very well covered, Lake Ontario is very well covered, uh, and we're starting to make uh, significant progress covering uh, Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. Lake Superior is gonna be another animal in and of itself, just due to its vast size. But to get back to your question about how far you can hear these fish, it's all dependent upon two things. First, the water conditions, right? So in the western basin of Lake Erie, you know, the water is pretty turbid. You know, you can't see very far. That means there's a lot of stuff in the water. Well, that reduces the, the distance a sound signal can travel underwater. You know, so if you take that same transmitter and receiver and go into the eastern basin where the water is very clear, you'd have a much greater detection range. So the detection range of these transmitters is going to be dependent upon the water conditions as also and also the tag size so the transmitters we generally use or we've been using for like bigger fish like walleye lake sturgeon and whatnot they're about the size of a double a battery and they can go anywhere from like a half a kilometer all the way up to a kilometer or a little bit more you know in ideal conditions now some of the smallest tags we use are about the size of a tic tac and researchers have been putting those into round gobies and uh, you know yellow perch. So there's a wide size range of fish that we can actually monitor their movements and the battery size dictates how far away we can hear those fish when they're uh, swimming around by a receiver. So the one thing that I, I correct, I know you'll correct me when I'm wrong, if not producer dude will jump on me, but so this information though at this point in time is not immediate back. You guys have to go back and basically download, like you drive your boat over and it's almost like a Wi-Fi or Bluetooth deal, right? Close, we're getting close to that. So generally the way it works is we'll go out and put a receiver down and then depending upon how quickly we need that information, we'll go back and retrieve it. So when we're working in the rivers, like to watch walleye movement, we probably put those receivers out at the beginning of the year and we'll pull them in May or June when we think the fish are done running. Out in the main lake, we generally tend those receivers on an annual basis. So in May or June, we'll go out there, deploy a receiver. It will just sit there passively listening. It's just like the toll system on the turnpike. You're the, you're, as a, a car, you're a tagged fish. When you go through one of those toll bridges, that's like a receiver. So those receivers just sit there and constantly listen. So we'll go back to that receiver, we'll pull it up from the bottom, or we'll send a code down and the whole unit will actually float up to the surface. We'll download the data, we'll um, replace the batteries, and then if we're going to put it back down, we'll put it right back down there, and it will sit there for, um, for the next year. We're actually so, in the pro... Go ahead. So the ones on the lake, they do stay out 24-7 though, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, and so we're actually in the process of developing the technologies there. We're just starting to apply it to the Great Lakes where we can actually send an unmanned uh, vessel out there, basically what we call an AUV, an aquatic underwater uh, uh, vehicle, and so, um, or aquatic unmanned vehicle. And we can actually, or a drone, and the pilot will actually just send that drone underwater on a predetermined path and we can communicate with the receiver the data gets uploaded to you know the drone or the auv and then we go on to the next one so once we download all that data we upload it to the cloud on a database and so that's where uh, a researcher if a researcher is conducting research say in green bay and they tagged a bunch of walleye or, or lake sturgeon if those fish swim over to lake uh, erie they will know because 
they are able to utilize all the receivers. They're not restricted to just using the receivers they deploy. If their fish swims near any of the receivers that are deployed, they get their information back. Roughly what is the radius or a diameter, let's say a diameter, that what is the reach? I mean, how many do you have to have so you don't overlap, but you get okay. everything? So here's the way you got to think about it. There are some receivers that are deployed out there. So out in, you know, out in the open water, we may have an, a single receiver. And that's just going to give us presence or absence information. Was a fish within X amount of distance from this receiver or not at this time? The other way we can use these receivers actually is if we put three or more in the close proximity to one another. And then if a fish is in between those three receivers, we're actually able to to triangulate the position of that fish using complex math that I don't fully understand, but we kind of send it off to the company, they process the data, and we're actually able to get coordinates back of where that fish was at different time spots. So that's what we're using like on the reef. So when we want to understand the spawning ecology of walleye or other fish species, we actually will deploy a bunch of receivers on a reef and as the fish swims onto that reef and mills around, every time that the, that receiver, uh, every time that transmitter emits a signal and it's detected by three or more receivers, we can actually triangulate with some error where that fish was. And so we've been able to watch fish, see, say, swim up onto Crib Reef there in the Western Basin, mill around for a long period of time, and then exit the reef. And so in those for those studies that we need that fine scale habitat use, we'll use a bunch of receivers to look at the fine scale movements. But when we're really looking at fish movements, say like through broad expanses through the central basin or in the open water areas, the presence absence uh, information may be sufficient. So there may only be one receiver in that area. Interesting. And now also, I, I, correct me again when I'm wrong, but we can tell how deep that fish is based on the pressure. Is that or? Yeah. yeah. So it, depending upon, so you have the baseline transmitter that just emits a signal at fixed intervals. Well, it's actually not at fixed intervals. It's within some time range and then randomly it goes off so that, you know, you don't have tags uh, colliding with each other. But you can also get uh, tags that either record the temperature they record the depth. They can actually record uh, how fast a fish is accelerating at a given moment. And then mo recently, within the last five years or so, they've been developing tags, what we call predation tags. So if you were to tag, say, a gizzard shad or a yellow perch, and that fish was eaten by another fish, when that fish is eaten and the uh, tag starts getting digested, it starts emitting a different code. So we have an idea that that fish was actually predated on. Yep. So we're starting to get a lot of Crazy. different option. Yeah. So you can you so when we when we're looking at spawning behavior, we can look at what temperature the fish are using to spawn, but we can also look at the depth. Are they near the bottom? Are they at the surface and, and whatnot? So there are a lot of different you know uh, sensors that we can add onto those transmitters to address different study objectives. So besides walleyes, what else do we have the ability to track with this technology? All right, I'm looking here at my some of my stats. So for the Great Lakes, uh, for the GLaDOS network, we've tagged a total of 47 different species in the Great Lakes Basin. So a majority of those fish are your, your native species, like your walleye, your lake trout, lake whitefish. But we're also using uh, the, the, the technology to monitor like the movements of invasive species like sea lamprey. We're learning a lot about the ecology of sea lamprey, where they go to spawn, you know, and what their general ecology is. We've been putting them in grass carp to understand the grass carp movements, you know, in the event that uh, other, some of the silver or big head carp make it into the Great Lakes, you know, we'll have a, an understanding about where these fish may spawn and their spawning behavior. And then, like I said, we're, we're really starting to push the envelope and tagging these smaller fish. So guys literally are tagging gobies, right? Four, five inch gobies with these tic-tac size transmitters uh, put into the fish. Tell me something that I did not know that we've learned with this technology. Okay. So Ross, did you know? Oh, you even did it right. Travis, it took him so long to get there. Thank you. 
Did you know that walleye exhibit, exhibit very predictable and repeating, repeated spawning movements uh, throughout the course of the year? I did not. I mean, so, I, I, I've heard, I guess sidebar, like Sandusky Bay, like there's different, I've heard like almost gene pools and some of the bigger fish go to Sandusky Bay and they spawn right out of the gate and then leave. Is well, that kind of part of what you got or? Yeah, yeah. So gene pools is a, uh, is a, would be a contentious uh, choice of word because some of the genetics. It's a lot of walleye. syllables for a walleye guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of so syllables. It's very difficult to parse out uh, some of these different walleye stocks with genetics. But by tagging these individual spawning aggregations or stocks, say the Sandusky River, Maumee River, Ohio Reefs, Detroit River Reef, uh, Detroit River stock, Ontario reefs, we're able to get an idea of how these different stocks, if you would, move throughout the lake. So one of the earliest studies we started with was back in 2010 up in the Titabawassee River in Saginaw Bay, and then a companion study in uh, the Maumee River. And so what we found uh, for those fish up in uh, Saginaw Bay was that when they spawned in the Titabawassee River and left Saginaw Bay, some proportion of them made a left-hand turn and went north up towards the Straits, up towards Lake Michigan. And another proportion of the population actually made a right and started heading down to Southern Lake Huron. And some of them eventually make it into Lake Erie actually. But what was interesting is they repeatedly did the same behavior from year to year. So those that went out of Saginaw Bay and made a right, well, they kept doing that in successive years. And those that made, turned and made a left, they did the same thing. In Lake Erie, we're seeing very similar things. Uh, if you're talking about the fish that are spawning on the reefs or in the rivers, they come out and they leave after the spawning period. They leave that general area and they make very predictable and repeated movements to the same areas year after year. Now, the extent to which they go may vary from year to year based on whether it's a cool year or a warm year, but the general, you know, pattern, you know, movement is pretty predictable. And that actually is what made them probably pretty susceptible to overfishing, you know, early on, or what makes any fish stock over uh, susceptible to overfishing is when they do the same thing on repeated basis, because then fishermen can set up in known areas. And I'm sure you know that. I'm sure you have your little black book that you keep locked away somewhere that says, I want to be here on this date with this water temperature, because this is where the big fish are going to be. Interesting. Okay. That, that doesn't surprise me so much, what you said. I mean, that's, I mean, I think people, they find it hard to believe how far they do move. You know, um, I think it might've been your boss at the, at the uh, Ohio fisheries at the time, Jeff Tyson. I remember I calling a, a tag into him that was tagged up on Thunder Bay on Lake Huron and 30 some days later it was, you know, I caught it down in Huron, Ohio. And he basically was, calling me crazy in a corner crew brat and thinking I was screwing with him, which is viable. But, uh, <laughs> you know, anybody knows Jeff, you know, he's a little, you know, corner crew yep. brat. Jeff, anyway, Jeff had his own vernacular, that's for sure. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a good old boy from down south. But yep. any rate, um, okay. yeah, what, what, educate me some more, Chris. Okay. So, Ross, did you know that while I actually spend very little time in the mid and upper water column throughout the course of the year? What do we call an upper part of the water column? Say uh, in the upper 25% of the water column. So you're, if you're off of Cleveland, they spend very little time actually suspended up in the water column. They're generally associated with the bottom. Really? So I guess then not to, to pin this on you, but when we say bottom, are we talking, let's say in Cleveland, we're 50, 60 feet or something. Mm -hmm. Are we talking that they're 40 to 50 feet or more down? No, I'm saying within a couple meters of the bottom. Like All this metric stuff. Crazy. Okay. Uh, three, three to six feet. They're within three to six feet of the bottom. Okay. So those pressure tags we talked about, we released a bunch of walleye with those pressure tags and we were able to follow them over the course of the year. And what we, we, we thought was very, very intriguing was, is that when you looked at the history of where these fish were located, they actually came up off the bottom for very short periods of time over the course of 24 hours. So they're probably resting near the bottom for the majority of the day. When they get the, the hankering or the urge to feed, 
They kind of move up into the water column, do what they're going to do, and kind of drop right back down. I was going to say, because, you know, a little bit of, on both sides of this, um, I've caught fish. I mean, I'm not going to tell people how high because it's that high in Cleveland, but primarily in low lighter at night. Me and producer, dude, you remember that TV show we shot about, was it 10 years ago, maybe? Yeah, the cold Probably. one, like right around Christmas. It was Christmas time, yeah. And we caught fish like stupid high. But again, it was dark and they were feeding on. There was tons of gizzard shad and, you know, stuff high in the column there, fishing kind of little eddies. But inversely, you know, I told some guide clients the other day and they kind of looked at me like I was crazy. You know, we're talking well west of there in the central basin. Um, but long story short, the fish were like there, but they were so deep. It was one of those deals, unless you had really good electronics, knew what you were doing, like, because you don't really ever mark fish on bottom on bottom. You really don't. But nevertheless, those fish lifted up a little bit, and it was like you could do no wrong. And it was just like you said, they maybe came only up five, you know, so the, the real good biters came up 10 feet, but uh, off bottom there, again, in 50, 55 feet of water. But then they go right back down, and it was like you could do nothing right. Like, it was, that was your window. And so I, I've, I've kind of seen both you know, ends of that spectrum. And I tell people all the time when they're on bottom, man, it's like the analogy I use is it's like being, um, you know, in a prison cell with the lights out or something and somebody wanting, <laughs> you're like, you're just, everybody's kind of minding their own business. Right. Then it's like cheesecake at the cafeteria for free when they're off bottom. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty, that's pretty, uh, you know, I think that actually changed my thought. I thought they were up high, you know, feeding, you know, you hear a lot of guys running baits in the mid water column, you know, during the middle of the day or even at night, you know, but I, it, it was, and when we set our gill nets to set, survey them, you know, generally we would keg them or drop them just below the surface and surface and we'd get lots, you know, we'd catch lots of fish, but they proportionally spend a, a very little time, you know, in the upper, in the upper, part of the water column based on some of the preliminary stuff that we've been seeing. Which is, you know, it's, and things change, right? In the nineties, when I kind of started doing this full time, um, we caught a lot of fish. And when you'd say hi, if there was a reason you weren't catching them, it's because you weren't going high enough. Like we were catching them three to let's say 10 feet down. Um, and that's why the, I think the baits have changed that we use so much now, because a lot of that stuff that was so successful just can't get deep enough. And we've got to, you know, snap weights and move into to other methods. So. Um, that's why hopefully people listen to this realize that like this information you, you, you know use it but kind of try to apply it to what you already know and it helps you understand maybe the results or the lack of results that you're getting yeah so along the, the lines of the fish moving up in the water column ross did you know that walleye are capable or have been observed inhabiting water that varied by 50 degrees over a 24-hour time period 50 degrees yeah so like, out, where could where could they even happen so out in the eastern basin again outward the thermal stratification st uh, sets up very strong so you know past you know east of the pennsylvania ridge talking now erie pennsylvania down to buffalo well, so i we might we talked a little bit earlier about the transmitters and how we can put sensors in them you know, so one of the ones is temperature sensors. And so we've actually seen fish that will reside in very cool water during the day, kind of just chilling, and then lifting up into the warmer water, likely to feed, and then dropping back down. So in graduate school, I worked on Dale Hollow Reservoir with walleye actually uh, there. And it was very common for the fish to actually, they actually did something. What they would do is they would stay in the, they would stay, they would stay in the warmer water. They would, and then they would just drop, no, they would stay in the cold water. They'd come up and, and just gorge themselves on threadfin shad and whatnot. And then they'd drop down below the thermocline and just chill out there during the day. Now they'd also be able to feed on alewives, which are in that colder water, but they had the best of both worlds. They could chill in the cold water during the day, go up and eat a very accessible meal with threadfin shad and gizzard shad, then drop back down in the cold water. You see the same thing happening in the Eastern Basin. And so what's interesting is down there in the Eastern Basin, what we're seeing is that our older and bigger fish, primarily the females, are the ones that travel the furthest east on an annual basis. And that's likely what they're doing. They're maximizing uh, their metabolism. 
where they can go and feed on warm water species and then just go sit in the cold water and just slow that metabolism way down. Is there a number, when you said like, basically they're, they're burning essentially more calories, I know that's not what's happening, but yep. they're burning more yep. calories than yep. what they're putting up or however yep. that, that translates. Yep. No, that's what, exactly is, it. what is that temperature where now they're burning more than, let's say they're not eating, but you know what I mean? Yeah, so I think maybe uh, your uh, technology dude, I think, as you refer to him here. Producer the, dude. Producer, producer dude. dude. He's like Wilson. Home, like, remember Home Improvement? Wilson? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Don't, you don't ever really see him, but he's there. He's there, yeah. You need a fence. You need a right, fence. Right. You can I'm here. Over. Yeah. All right. Um, so in, in, um, in scientific units, we call it Celsius. So if I offhand, it's about 20 degrees Celsius, which... I'm not entirely sure what that convert, converts to, to Fahrenheit. But what we're seeing is we're, uh, when these fish have the chance, they are selecting temperatures that, that's cooler than that. Um, you know, so when the lake is thermally stratified, when there's cold water and warm water, fish are selecting temperatures that are, are a bit cooler than that 20 degree uh, Celsius mark. That's 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, so we're probably talking that they're they're closer down into the 60s and whatnot. So Producer, not that it's coming through in a pinch. I love it. Yeah, there you go. I guess I've listened to enough podcasts. That I know there's somebody there ready at the keyboard, ready to go. There's somebody there that's smarter than the host. <laughs> we're still uh, looking for that guy. <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, so anyway, that's kind of what we're finding, and and that was another one of those uh, did you know facts I was going to tell you is did you know that fish of different size and different ages actually have different thermal preferences. And, and basically what we're seeing is, is that these bigger, larger fish select colder waters than the younger fish, which has caused me to come to the conclusion. And I, you know, again, I worked up in Northern Minnesota for a year and it, it draws the ire, but I would argue that Lake Erie is the most ideal place for walleye in North America. And I say that because they have what they need for all uh, aspects of their life cycle. When they're young and when they're hatched, they have the Western Basin, which is warm, which allows them to grow quickly, and which has a bunch of food, tons of forage for them to eat. As they grow older, there's habitat that's conducive for them to live to long ages and to kind of just survive. So as they get older and they grow larger, they, they, they uh, select cooler temperatures. So really, it's the best of both worlds. It's good for them when they're young. And then as they grow older, um, they get to be, uh, they, there's habitat there that supports and sustains them getting to those older ages. So uh, I don't know, Ross, if you have the time, but uh, I wanted a, did you know, Ross, that female walleye spend relatively very little time on the spawning grounds? That doesn't surprise me, but what are we calling a little time? Okay, Ross, if uh, your boat was on the line, what would you guess the average amount of time a female spends on the spawning grounds in the act of spawning is? Boat on the line. This is producer, dude. I feel like there's, I, this, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I mean, it's definitely got to be less than 48 hours. I would say 10 hours, 12 hours. Ross, I will give you my address and you can park your boat in my driveway, you know, later this afternoon. The correct <laughs> answer would be likely less than an hour. Oh, producer, dude, did you see that coming? No, I, I was thinking a, a couple days. Yeah, because, I mean, you see them roll. See, I, in fairness, before I hand over the keys, um, like, you know, how they're out there rolling, you know, softening the eggs. Technically, they're on the reefs. All right. Ross, what happens when an uh, attractive individual walks into a bar? Oh, gosh. Producer, dude, this is going to go south it fast. Going I'm loving it. Quickly. I'm loving it. Yes, let's do it, Chris. It's, it's basically a train wreck, right? <laughs> just like this podcast exactly go for it so so here's the deal what we're finding is that while those females may come over to say the reef area or come into the rivers to stage for quite a bit of, bit of time 
They're actually not on the spawning grounds for very long. One drink. Yeah, one. Well, so interestingly, one of the female researchers in our collaboration refers it to it as understanding the dynamics from the bar to the bedroom. Oh, God. In today's With, day and age in a government agency, that, that's... Well, she was in academia, so I guess she had a little bit more cover there. But, um, but so what's interesting is this, te this telemetry is helping us understand, you know, what, the, what their movements are and what the ecology is. So what we're seeing is those females, like you kind of alluded to, right? So early in the year, everybody wants to be the first one out there trolling around the perimeter of the reefs, right? They're looking for that big state record, right? But what are all those fish? They're all pre-spawn, right? They're all still gravid. But what we're seeing and what we, we think is going on is that these fish stage out there and they're just waiting for the water temperatures and the photo period to get right. But when it comes time to spawn, they literally run up onto that reef, go around, spawn. They exhibit that behavior you're talking about where you see them come up to the surface and there might be four or five males kind of nudging her and, and, and pressing on her abdomen, trying to get those eggs theoretically to release. But once that's done, it's very quick, and she is off to the races. So we actually see once she spawns, she starts heading out east. So, I mean, like what I've seen, let's say the reef complex. Let's say like a Camp Perry reef complex. Yep. A lot of spawning goes on there. Obviously, yep. that's not the only place. But we'll see those fish head towards like the Bass Islands, maybe yep. not even quite to that you know, on the mud basins and because I catch them on bouncers or something on the bottom. Or when we get to Kelly, some of that deep water there. Uh, so those deep water holes, obviously, I don't know where they spawned or whatever, but I mean, how long from there to there do you think? Probably, possibly a matter of hours, if not less than a day. Now, some of those, I feel like from a fishing standpoint, again, I don't obviously know when any of these fish are spawning, but I feel like what, what we see is when those first big waves come in, right? Which is the best knowledge I can have. Cause like, Hey, fish aren't spawning. Now all of a sudden they're spawning. You're yep. either seeing it or, you know, and now all of a sudden you're catching fish that are, while well, you still got some that are pre-spawn that are staging. Hey, we got some that are post-spawn now. Like you could 10 pound fish and it's got yep. nothing yep. in there. And we're catching those generally towards the bottom generally. And yep. I've caught them literally with mud caked in their gills. Yep. We're like, yep. you know, I'm, I'm my theory is, hey, they're down there. They're recovering from the spawn. They're going to try to put on a little bit, of, little protein shake before they hightail it out of there. Do we have any idea what that resting before they long haul it is? So here's the thing is, uh, while Lake Erie is covered very well right now with receivers, when we did the initial releases of those fish on Niagara and Crib Reef and in the Maumee Rivers, we didn't have as great extensive coverage. So we couldn't answer those questions. Now we can. But I think what you're saying and what you're seeing is, is very consistent with what we see. So there have been some studies that shows that those bigger females, they are the ones that spawn first and they're the first ones that leave the Western Basin. They start hightailing it, they go through the, the island area very quickly. And so anecdotally, what was interesting is when the professional walleye tournament used to come to town to Port Clinton, you know, Travis and I would often work it and we'd be getting samples there. And interestingly, the guys that were winning it were generally catching post-spawn fish, but they were running really far east. And it was like a gamble to how far east they wanted to run because those were generally the biggest fish, but they were spent, right? So you could either stay in the Western Basin, troll, hope to get those pre-spawn fish, or you went, you started heading more east, looking for those fish that were maybe more favorable, but the trade-off was, is were you gonna be able to find them, right? So they were generally the big tanks and they were generally spawned out. Well, and you know, a lot of that too, I 100% agree. And you know, I would say like Vermilion, Lorraine seems to be kind of, I don't know if I say holding grounds, but kind of yep. short-term stopping grounds for what you just said. And I think a lot of those tournaments and ones that I've personally won or, you know, done well in, whereas where when you're down in those areas, but you're actually catching these fish that have absorbed or haven't dropped eggs, and that's something that you know, we've learned with Travis a lot, you know, a little more, and maybe you can touch on this, where some of these fish that are like, you know, X age, you know, as Travis's terms was, you know, hey, it's like a 70-year-old woman giving birth. Like they don't go through that process every year, maybe every other, every third year. And those fish are the ones how you win tournaments for sure. So Ross, you apparently somebody has tipped you off to the game show host questions because I was going to say, Ross, did you know that walleye, female walleye don't spawn every year? 
Stealing Thunder since 94. Stealing Thunder. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Actually, that was the first. Uh, so the telemetry has actually given us the first actually evidence of that, right? So when we would tag these fish, they would all be what we called gravid females. These were females in the spring that had the distended belly, very clear. They were sexually mature. So what we were able to find is that on an annual basis, they don't always come back to spawn. Some of them, when they migrate out east, they'll stay out east all year long. So when their compadres are migrating back to the western basin to spawn, they'll actually make the decision to stay out there. And we look at where we're finding them on the receivers, and we don't think that they're on other spawning grounds because the spawning habitat is you know, generally pretty not limited, but pretty well-defined. So we, we have pretty good evidence to suggest that they're not spawning again, but rather they're making this decision to not go through the process. Now, what you described is actually a female that developed the eggs and she decided to reabsorb them for whatever reason, right? Like you said, those were females that or were- Or maybe she just couldn't spawn, right? I mean, maybe he, yeah. he, he wanted to do her, but mama says no. Yeah, I mean, so there's a physiological cost to spawning, right? It's not a simple thing. I mean, think about it. Um, they're losing up to 25% of their weight in a very short period of time when they spawn. You know, female eggs generally are in the neighborhood of 20 to 25% of a fish's weight, right? It can be that much. So if you're depositing those eggs in a 45-minute period, can you imagine how metabolically and physiologically expensive that is so there's some type of decision process going on that says hey it's better for me to reabsorb it there's a few places on the lake which i'm not going to tell anybody but that i have um i, I caught a 35 incher that was spawned out still weighed 14 pounds like i mean you know that's this is back when tyson was the head of fisheries and he's like oh congratulations longest walleye we've seen in a while and oh by the way that would have been a state record with eggs like great. yeah oh but but during that deal, I saw multiple fish that were floating, okay, and had seagulls pecking on them that they I'm assuming died during spawning, and they were they were all giants. I mean, yeah. 32, 33 inches. Like I mean, a legit 33 inch walleye. I, there's just not many of them. Yeah, no, and that's why I'm saying it's physiologically very expensive. I mean, think about it. From the time they deposit their eggs. Everything they're doing up until that time the next year is basically focused on that same thing, developing eggs for the next year. I think it's really interesting that, again, because one of my questions for you was going to be, rather than it was on or off camera, is, you know, are those bigger fish, like when you, you already said, but, you know, that they're staying east, whatever that may be, whatever east is, east of Cleveland, let's say. But I seem to catch a lot of fish, I'll say east of the Bass Islands, but still I'm going to call not really in the central basin or not much mm -hmm. and basically where it starts to go deep and mm -hmm. those fish are in there and, and we catch a i would say a, a fair amount of what i'm going to call fish that are absorbing their eggs or at least fish once you know basically fishing is done and these fish are still loaded up right so mm -hmm. let's say this is maybe late may or something that water temperature is getting up there guys are hardly catching any any fish at all even the males have left the reefs so again, I'm assuming, but those fish did not go through it for whatever reason. Generally, they're all big fish, but those fish must have made that, that travel down, assuming they just weren't some local fish. Because there's a lot of fish that are, you know, I catch some fish here locally that, you know, they don't seem to ever leave and they're bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, so they may come back, but they may decide not to run up the river or go back to the reef. To spawn. I mean, we don't have any way of telling if a fish actually expelled their eggs, but when you don't see them go back to known spawning areas, you say, okay, this fish decided not to spawn for whatever reason. I mean, the thing that's interesting about the area you're talking about is that, you know, there's a gyre that sets up there near Wheatley, right? That's kind of infiltrated with kind of cool, clear water throughout even the summer. And so it must be a really good spot, you know, for those fish to kind of just set up and they may just stay there as long as they can, because again, they have the cool, wet, cool water, but they also have abundant forage. That, that's a good place, you know, for big walleyes and, um, you know, steelhead, you know, for, I don't think it's, it's for whatever reason, it hasn't quite set up like it used to in the last handful of years, but I can remember as a uh, much younger fella, you know, that a lot of guys would make that run up there because it was, it was way, way, way more consistent than it is now. But, um, 
Yeah, just there, there's so many things here. I don't think even you would take a hard stance on because we're still learning. And as more of this information, just more years, right? You add this information up that it becomes a little more, you can say, hey, this, is, this isn't maybe a rule of thumb, but this is consistent data. Well, what's interesting is that every time we get our results back, we're just like, man, these fish aren't doing what we, what, what, what they're supposed to be doing. And, and the reality of it is, is right, you develop these conceptual models. But once you actually start tagging fish and getting a better idea of what they're doing, then you're like, oh, now I see. And so that why that's important, while this is very interesting, why it's important for the fishery managers, because now they can start putting certain numbers on these things, right? So basically, managers know that you know, come June, July, there's probably very few older fish in the population in the Western Basin. They've all moved out. In fact, by like the end of May into June, most of those older fish, you know, they're going to be some that you're going to find, but the majority of them have moved out of the Western Basin. So when you're talking about, well, how many fish are there in Lake Erie? Well, yeah, there may be 100 million walleye in Lake Erie, but 75% of them may be, you know, east of Cleveland at any you know, given time due to the time of year and the dynamics and the demographics of the population. If they're all older, then they're probably inhabiting different waters. Yeah, I mean, anybody that's listening to this, definitely go look at uh, a couple of podcasts here with Travis Hartman, the, the fisheries director, or whatever his title there for Ohio is, because we he told us it was like 90 some percent left the Western Basin, which I was just, I knew it was a big portion, but yeah. it, it blew my mind just because you think of, I mean, forget the science for a second, like 90% of the sport fishing and charter captains are all there. Like you yeah. go to these other places, yeah, they exist, but nothing like it is down here. And I mean, that was a mind blowing number to me. And it's really important, right? Because if you're taking a sample and you're saying, oh, the maximum age of walleye in the Western Basin of Lake Erie is only five years old, you're just like, wow, they don't live very long, right? In June. But if you were to take a sample of the whole lake, you'd say, oh, look, the maximum age is 22 years old because all those bigger, older fish have migrated down to the New York waters. So that's where this telemetry information, in my opinion, has been uh, great because it helps the, the managers get a, a better conceptual framework of what these fish are doing and what the stock as a whole is doing. You know, We're seeing first the uh, reef fish move out of the Western Basin. Then the Maumee River fish move out, and then the Detroit River come out. So it's like there's waves of fish that are moving through the Western Basin. And I just laugh when people are like, oh, that's a reef fish. And I just like, how do you know? Like, <laughs> I mean, just because as you watch the data, it just, it, it, they, they're coming through in waves, and you just don't know. It's very hard to predict or say this is this kind of fish. Well, and, and I've had this conversation with what I'm about to tell you with, with Travis privately and on our podcast is that when I was a young kid, they used to do the helicopter deal, like speed checking, right? And that, and they were they were timing, just like you the cops do with, you know, marks on the highway. And that was how they were trying to estimate the populations. And you just kind of look at it like, oh my God, that's archaic. And I just wonder, you know, as, as relatively fast as we've come to what we're talking about with, you know, the acoustic uh, stuff that you're doing is you know, are me and you in five or 10 years going to look back on this conversation or someone look at this podcast and go, can you believe we listen to those guys? Like that was like, now we just go to this app and we, we find out, you know, what's going on. I mean, what, is there any technology in the works, whether you're involved with or not, or a different division that is going to help us understand real numbers, movements, um, or just, or, or the fish, you know, aging or whatever that may be real hard numbers. What are we doing to get there? So when Travis and I both started, we instituted aging fish with otoliths, and that was a huge. Those are the inner, the lucky stones that you find from drum on the shoreline. They're the ear bones, and they give a much more accurate and precise estimate of a fish age than what was historically used with scales. So like when I first started, Travis and I would search the database, and the maximum age was like 10 years old. You know, a few years into us starting, we started using these otoliths, and boom, oh, look at this, we have 22-year-old fish out there. Well, what does that tell us about the population? It tells us that natural mortality, the rate at which fish die due to natural causes, is probably way lower than we thought it was. And that's good because that's an investment, right? So now you can invest in the future with these big hatches so that you have good fishing 5, 10, 15 years down the road because you know that they're going to they're gonna live. Whereas if you think a fish is only going to live to 10 years old, 
why not harvest it, right? So here's my last question for you. With, with what you've, all you've said in this, this tagging stuff, the, let's say a, a bigger fish that's roughly 10 years old and one that's three years old. When they start to move east to the central basin, maybe to the west end of the eastern basin, in that range, so let's say like Lorraine to maybe the Pennsylvania Ohio line, something like that. Are those bigger fish, are a three pound walleye and a nine or 10 pound walleye, are they swimming side by side? Are they different portions of the water column because of that cool water you said that, you know, that they like, or are these things mixed up? Probably, I would say they're gonna be mixed up, yeah. I don't think that they segregate themselves necessarily in the water column like you're kind of referencing. I think it's more of a longitudinal segregation. Like I think that those bigger fish tend to be, not exclusively, but tend to be further east than the smaller ones. But at a locale, yeah, I think it's very, very, um, very similar. Now, with that being said, so when we would set, when I worked for the DNR, we would run gillnet surveys. We'd start in Toledo and we'd run all the way up to Conneaut, right, to the eastern border of Ohio. What you could see very clearly is that the mean size of both males and females would increase as you went from the west to the east. Now, you would always be catching fewer fish as you went from west to east, but the mean size was always increasing as you would go further east, and the proportion of females also would increase as you went from west to east. So they're definitely segregating, you know, in some fashion, but it's not like they're not any of the smaller ones, right? So some of those smaller ones may be genetically wired to run east, and they are going to be that really big fish five, six years down the road, right? It's just like deer, right? Big bucks probably are big when they're, you know, yearlings, right? It's like, oh, that's pretty impressive. You know, it, so these fish are probably exhibiting those tendencies early on, and it's not fully realized until they're, you know, more mature. I'm, I'm fascinated by this stuff. Producer dude, I mean, I think Chris was a pretty good game show host, don't you? I think we should have him back and maybe never Travis again. Oh my, see, see, he is a, he is a double agent. You know, he's always, he's on Travis's thing. Now he's on you, Chris. So remember that when you guys both side against me, but um, we would like to have you back on if, if you will uh, oblige us down the road. Yeah, absolutely. This is really uh, incredible stuff. I mean, it's so hard to try to, to synthesize all this data. I mean, so I'm looking at our database, right? So in our GLaDOS database, just for context, we have about 500 million fish detections. So, so trying to sift through all of that. So the other day, uh, that Matt Faust I was talking about, he was gonna run some summaries for me yesterday, last night, and he's like, uh, I can't. My computer can't handle the data set. It was, it was blowing his computer up right? Because we get so much data. So it's hard to parse through all this and, and pull out what you want. And so it forces us to ask very specific questions. And so I, I just see us doing this more and more. The first few years, to be honest with you, was just determining that this would work. So anytime you're doing big stuff in the Great Lakes, you'd have no idea if it works. So just a quick story, because this is a Travis story. When we first started, we started putting these pit tags in walleye. And I don't know if you're familiar with what a pit tag is, but if you have like a, a dog and you want to get it microchipped, that's a pit tag. So we put a couple thousand of these in fish that were spawning in the Maumee River back again in 2002. We released them. And then what we would do, we would do, it was called dumpster diving. We would go to the different, we would go to the different cleaning stations like Wild Wings, Turtle Creek, all of these places, and we would scan carcasses looking for these tags. And I mean, like some mornings in July, the pile would be undulating, you know, because of maggots, you know, but where we did, we had to scan these fish. And I remember the first time the reader went off, I think Travis was with me, and I did the happy dance, like, and he's just like laughing. But the thought that you could tag a fish, release it and then find that fish in the population of 60 million was just at the time is not mind numbing. Right. But this is how this technology, this stuff works. It's like, you got to take the risk and give it a try. People were telling us we were nuts. There's no way. It's the same thing with the telemetry. We, we initially, those projects were just like a proof of concept. Will this even work? 
And now Lake Erie is probably one of the best studied in terms of receivers uh, coverage in, in the world with the telemetry. Like, I mean, the stuff that we're doing here in the Great Lakes is the same that they're doing out in the ocean to monitor great white shark movements. All across the globe, they're using this telemetry stuff. And I think we're very fortunate because of the investments that were made at the fishery, the Great Lakes Fishery Commission and having this technology and this the capabilities here in the Great Lakes. It, it's, it's amazing. I think it's safe to say that we don't know enough and as much, or as much as we think we do, but we know so much more than we did just a little bit ago. We know how much we don't know. There you go. Well, the good, here's the good news and the bad news. The good news, the producer dude likes you. That's very difficult. I'm not going to lie. He, does, he still doesn't like me. We've been together like 12 years or something stupid. Okay. The bad news is we don't really pay for this. Our budget is how much producer do? What's our budget currently? Uh, zero. Zero. We're still at zero. So we would love to have you on if you would have us. Um, and sure. we're going to have to do this down the road. So save some fun facts for us and some other, you know, if there's anything that pops up, make sure to let us know. But um, producer dude, is he equal with Travis or did, I mean, where are we at on a one to 10 scale? Cause I feel like there's a little friendly competition here or maybe not so friendly. This was really good. I mean, I mean, it was all new stuff that we did, didn't learn from Travis and not saying, and we learned a lot from Travis, but this, this was just additional pieces to the puzzle. Uh, I think they're, they, they gotta be complimentary, right? Because Travis, they have the management authority. We basically just answer questions. Our, our role is to answer research questions. So, you know, it's, it's a good combination. Travis and I always like to poke each other, but at the end of the day, we call each other up and we get together on a regular basis, so. Well, Chris, thank you for giving us your time and thank you everybody for tuning into the Big Water Podcast. We've got a pile of them loaded up on YouTube and God, where do we got them? Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Producer Dude, I'm dying. What else do we got? Got them. That's it. Uh, and BigWaterFishing.com. They're also there. There's a, a podcast page on your website. Look for Big Water Fishing on YouTube. We've got us on Instagram, Facebook. Pretty much just Google us, right? I think we're everywhere, as I like to say, but in prison so far. Yeah, that's what yeah. you say. I do. Doesn't get any better. Again, thanks, Chris, for your time. Hopefully you enjoyed it. We're out. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me.